0: Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Squeeze show. You're about to enjoy my interview, which I did with Matt Donnelly, uh, the mind noodler, and we spoke a few weeks ago. Uh, Before that, though, let me just tell you a bit about something we've got coming up soon. Now, it was about two years ago, when I was about to turn 40, when I decided to do something called Fest. I called it. It was a 24-hour podcast for charity and uh, it was got, all went out on audio and for 24 hours i was either hosting one of my podcasts or i was guesting on someone else's so all the way through 24 hours just just me talking uh, and it was so much fun raised a lot of money for dogs for good was the charity we were raising for that time and we're doing it again this time though with the added wrinkle since we now do a video podcast uh, for the Dogs squeeze show it's going to be on video so uh, I'm gonna be going live for 24 hours on Facebook Live and we'll have some special guest stars seeing as uh, the Dr. Squee Show is an interview show. I'm gonna be doing about six is the current count interviews. I can't really tell you anything at this early stage because we've got some booked, some in the process of booking. I really wanna kind of like um, whip out all these bookings at you at once so you can just uh, stand in awe of them. Uh, Because we've got some really special ones, and and it's going to be great. And it's going to be happening on the 19th and 20th of September, UK time, 2pm to 2pm. And uh, we'll work out what that is in your local time zone. So I think 2pm would be, sorry, five hours. It's five hours earlier for EST anyway, uh, for Eastern time. So uh, work that out yourself because I'm doing this on the fly. So nine o'clock, something like that anyway. And we're gonna have loads of guest stars. We're gonna have loads of other shows coming on and uh, talking to me, and it, it's it's gonna be a good time. We're gonna be raising money for NHS to charities together, which is a very special charity they've set up, which brings all the charitable funds of the NHS into one. So uh, its primary focus at the moment is to help the staff and volunteers fighting COVID at the moment, which of course is on everyone's mind right now. As well as doing that, though. There's lots of research being done by the NHS so if you're outside the country and you're outside the UK and you go like why should I care about the NHS well like for a start obviously I like to think that your compassion isn't geo-locked to your country but even if it is they're putting money towards uh, research towards cures and uh, here in Southampton where I am there is a local hub of activity around research. Uh, the University of Southampton is a world leader in research, uh, scientific research, and they're doing huge project, project even, to manage um, looking into kind of people's immune systems and how it responds to the virus. And so uh, it's wonderful. So if you donate, you're donating to that, I will have a Just Giving set up by next week when I do a little bit more of an announcement. I will tell you about some of my guests then, We've got so many just about to confirm. I want to be able to kind of like, yeah, say we're all out you at the same time so you can stand in awe. Uh, but it's going to be great. I, I cannot wait. It's going to be so exciting. So exciting last time. This time I'll have the added wrinkle of like, I've got to be on video for 24 hours so you can literally see me falling apart in front of your eyes and lose my uh, mental faculties. And last time I just like really, I, I had to host some shows and I did guest on others. But this time I'm going to, going to be conducting interviews pepped out throughout the 24 hours. So that's an extra kind of like skill set. You've got to be on the ball to interview someone. So that's going to be really interesting. And, and yeah, I can't wait for the challenge. So uh, more to come on that later. But back to this week's show. Matt Donnelly. He was wonderful to speak to. Now, I, I was nervous about how this one would come out. Only because what happened was when we were recording we had a slight technical snafu where the sync went out on my camera. It's a problem we had before, I thought we'd fixed it, apparently not, so I had to have a play around to get that to work properly. And when I did, uh, we we I thought we got it working fine. When we went live with Matt, just the sync went out and so I had to switch uh, webcams and to do that I had to kind of exit the stream and go back in. Uh, long story short, basically uh, what you're gonna hear is the beginning of the first stream and then it will hopefully seamlessly go into the other one as if it's one thing. At the time, we had to go out and back in again. And so there's two videos up on the Doc Scree Show page. And I was really worried. I, I felt like it had thrown me off my game a bit at the time. But when I listened back to it, I think I sound all right. I think I sound quite natural. Um, I don't think you're going to hear anything too jarring. Just like me bemoaning the technical issues a couple of times during the interview. But uh, it was really good. And... It's nice to know when I get thrown by these things, I'm a seasoned enough interviewer that I can still keep going, and still have a wonderful time talking to, to Matt. There, uh, he is fascinating. Just like uh, I find it really interesting when you've got a team like Pentella, and, and obviously I was I was interviewing Matt, but he he's worked with Pentella on so many projects. It's to see their influence on other people, and to see how he's grown his own thing. Working like not riding the coattails, but working with these people. It is a huge benefit to Someone's career and if you listen you learn You can do your own thing so t- to be taking out magic in his 40s I think it is an amazing thing and he'll talk a bit about that uh, and working with piff the magic dragon Which if you're not familiar with please look him up. He's an amazing performer so much fun uh, But yeah, it's just just a real good time So hopefully you enjoy this and uh, we'll tell you more about squee later, but for now Here's my interview with Matt Donnelly. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it going to be this time? We like to hear you talk, but we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show.
1: Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show.
0: Tonight, Squee welcomes
1: Matt Donnelly, the Mind Noodler.
0: And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee. This is my show. Uh, today we're we're Doing another one of our kind of little firsts here. And thank you, by the way, for anyone who, who joins us during the stream. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, hopefully, to welcome some new people. And um, we've got a first for this show. We've never had a, a magician on. Uh, so I, I'm really enjoying with the format of this podcast. I get to interview guests of all sort of different stripes. So this is very exciting to me. And it, it's it's someone who works with the best and and who is a seasoned performer who's just growing as a magician as well. But let me give him his propers in this, uh, in this little intro I've got here. My guest today has worked as a comedian and performer for decades. He worked closely with Penn & Teller on their stage shows, on their recent Masterclass, and with Penn on Penn's Sunday School podcast. And he's head writer on Penn & Teller Fool Us. As well as having his own podcast, Ice Cream Social, with Paul Mattingly, or Mattingly, depending on which country you're in, possibly, and Babble. He has now turned his hand to magic itself, firstly as Bill and now as the Mind Noodler, and he also co-runs Scoop Fest, the live event, which is taking place uh, when we're allowed to take place in such events. So please welcome to the Dr. Squeeze Show, Matt Donnelly. How are you doing today, my friend?
1: Oh, very good. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be your first and last magician guest. It's been to me great.
0: <laughs> well, I start with the best. So where, where's to go but up from? <laughs> you <know, you're>
1: <laughs> sure, sure.
0: It is kind of crazy. I mean, like, there's a few things, which I, a few bones, I feel like I've got to pick with you, sir. I mean, you look to be roughly, the, I believe you're roughly the same age as me. Like, staying a whole new career and being really good at it at this age is just really unfair on the rest of us. It just puts a lot of <laughs> uh, I'm 42, so I don't know, I don't know, uh, yep.
1: I don't know how old you are.
0: December, I'll be 42. So, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. It's just rude.
1: I've been doing, I've been, you know, you can't be pretty good at something you just start doing unless you were really unsuccessful at other things you're doing for a very long time. So don't be too hard on yourself. Starting a new career in my forties only meant that I was definitely an underachiever in my twenties and thirties.
0: Yeah. And oh, my sink, my video has now gone out, which is, oh, and of course my dog will now start barking on cue because this was going so well so far. <laughs> So, we were talking about, like, uh, the. Let, let's just start from scratch again. Matt sure. Donnelly!
1: Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me here.
0: Welcome to Doctor Squeeze Show, where everything goes smoothly all the time, 100%. Hey,
1: Matt, it's the uh, internet era. We're all stuck at home. We're running into all kinds of problems.
0: Let's go back, though. Um, let's start from scratch. Where where did you start kind of, like, getting interested in performing? What were your sort of, like, influences growing up? What were you seeing and, you know, getting excited <laughs>
1: Uh, I was always excited by the idea of comedy when I was a kid. And so I I, um, remember uh, renting, basically there's these VHS, you know, rental stores and I'd Mm -hmm. always rent, um, you know, I grew up with, with, um, with three other brothers and we all got to choose like one tape that we could have for the weekend kind of thing. And I always just rotated between uh, Eddie Murphy, Stephen Wright, Howie Mandel. Those are the three stand up specials that were available. At my local um you know um, video rental place yeah and then didn't really get into any kind of performance when i was younger no one of my family was a performer and then i went to um a high school that had a lot of different special programs so like there was like a vocation program special ed program all kinds of stuff and one of the things they had was a performing arts wing a whole wing of the school was dedicated to performing what? arts and other areas would get special you know, um, approval to send their children from their district to our school to go to school for the performing arts. I just happened to go there. But my sophomore year of high school, which is when I'm like uh, 15, 16,
0: okay.
1: I was a wise-ass my whole life. I was going to kick out of class all the time. I had no problem uh, getting up in front of people. Uh, but I never thought I should perform, but I auditioned for uh, performing arts and I got in. And at the same time, my friend and I started making this, uh, television show knockoff, like stealing our, stealing his, his mom's video camera. And we made TV shows. We started showing TV shows to people at parties and stuff where right? I hosted this mock talk show and, um, yeah. my friend's older brother played all the guests. And then, you know, it turned out he was doing an improv show on the weekends and it wasn't like a school affiliate thing. It was just an improv or you say improv in your country, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Improv.
1: Imp- oh, you say improv. Don't so you guys say no, impro but, or no?
0: i never heard impro.
1: Okay, great. That means it's another thing America won. Um, so,
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's talk about COVID next. <laughs> <laughs> you win as you.
1: So, uh, all right. Back you're, you're right. You, you won. You won there. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so we, uh, Yeah. And so I I started going to this improv show on the weekends and I was, I fell in love. So I started doing improv at 15, 16 years old. I started performing every Friday and Saturday night and um, at this local show, and it's very popular. And then I went into uh, school, I went to college for theater. And then, but my college was right near New York City. So I started going to New York City and studying at Chicago City Limits, which is an off Broadway improv show. And then Upright Scissors Brigade, which opened up a few years later and started studying and performing there. Um, just loved, loved improv, loved New York, um, and, you know, uh, became an improv teacher for a while. was doing a lot of like commercials and little bits and little TV shows, little films.
0: Just just kind of of fascinated about improv. Is it something that you feel like you, like you just naturally kind of were just quick paced at the ideas or some Was that something you had to pick up? Just loving performing? Oh,
1: I thought it was something I'd pick up right away. And then when I tried, that was turned out not to be true, and I was terrible for a very long time. Uh, But the show was very successful, so I I I kept taking classes and kept trying. And plus, I went to performing arts high school, so I got to practice there as well. So I was horrible for like a a good year while trying relentlessly almost every day to get better at it.
0: Is that kind of moment where you feel like you know just oh I've I've kind of got it something's clicked now, or is it just just grinding it down over time.
1: It's a tough call. I know. I, I had a friend who'd be like, you know, like eventually you can make so many jokes that eventually there's nowhere, nowhere else to go but where it gets laughs. Like you can <laughs> just keep, if you, if you throw Quite enough, yeah, if you just try to throw <laughs> enough, he did it with like a, uh, like, like a, he drew like a little square on a big piece of paper and he just started making marks with a pen. He was eventually you can just make so many jokes that there's nowhere to go but in this little box, that's funny. So, I also taught for a long time, so I always say, like, if you, like, if you make a joke and it sucks, but you know it sucks, then you can learn to be funnier. The only way you can not get funnier is a if, if, if total lack of self perception. If you think you're hilarious and no one else does, you're in trouble.
0: I only giggle because I'm resisting the urge to go to the obvious example on a lot of people's tongues. But let's—we're not going.
1: That. We're we're That's fine.
0: Too low-hanging fruit. Fair enough trying to take the high road it won't last long but there we go
1: there you go
0: and uh, like was it kind of a good scene where you grew up for for performance was it kind of like uh
1: i'd say so 90s and you know new jersey uh i mean we had like uh like eight coffee houses that opened up in like one little town you know so yeah. and all of them had their own like little like stage for anybody who wanted to teach themselves three chords on acoustic guitar or try improv comedy or whatever. I mean, that was the fun part about it was that stand up, stand up takes so much effort. And, um, and I tried my hand at that for a little while as well. um, Among my numerous failures. And uh, it just takes so much writing and takes so much trial and error. And then it doesn't always mix well in mixed environments, right? Like, so there's a lot of, you know, little open mics and variety shows and things like that. In these small little coffee houses, and going up and doing improv was so much more exciting to to as a change of pace for people in the room, and it was instant, and you know it, that kind of stuff was easier to practice and do more often.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think we grew up in the generation which was kind of in between the the very kind of like what you grew up to do should be something practical, something you know you should be doing, and the generation now which is kind of like no, follow your dreams and everything. We were kind of like it's. It felt like it was kind of in the pocket of those day
1: it's, it's yeah i wouldn't say i mean i i would say that there's a there's a, there's a lot of follow your dreams talk for me but there definitely was there's a sense of that that you can do a nine to five job and that's stable and there's good money there and i think what's funny what's funny now is it's, that's not true it's so like the alternative option to art isn't this isn't this boring yet yet easier path now everything's like acting now everything's like being a comedian so no matter what job you have now, you're, you're looking to do other stuff and you might have three jobs, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what your degree is. So I think, I think it's just, I think everything's just gotten both harder and yet more approachable with the, with technology. I certainly had a lot of people talk to about the risk of trying to go into show business and stuff, but also like um, Kevin Smith had hit with clerks. And so there's a lot of people who wanted to be like him. I was in a lot of independent movies and stuff when I tried to get into acting because a lot of people were just throwing their money away trying to be like Kevin Smith in my in my town. Um, Kevin Smith basically adopted my hometown as his hometown, and so he had like a, his his production company there and his comic book shop was there, and so oh, well, it, was like this, it was like this beacon of like let's people from New Jersey can be famous. Let's go for it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it was a very it was a local thing as well as a general thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I actually was going to be cast in a movie, and then Kevin Smith came in to produce that movie, and then Kevin Smith kicked me out of that movie. So I personally got told by the person who said everyone in Jersey can be famous, not you, buddy. So that was a good, that was a good, good, good time in my life.
0: I, I think you may have been the only person who was told by Kevin Smith, "No, you shouldn't do this."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it felt like it, and I, I can't find other examples, so I guess so.
0: Because I mean I think I, I I've gone like full circle with this because um I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith myself. And he talks a lot about like, oh everyone can do it. Everyone can just go out and do this. And with that you get a lot of people who maybe shouldn't and maybe aren't kind of haven't got the kind of talent like the the ability for it but then i kind of listened to what and said, like what you guys say on sunday school a lot which is about kind of some of the really out there and weird performers you get which are only multiplied by this and that's just really cool and and interesting
1: yeah i mean just no one knows right if there's like a way to do anything then we just all do it that way and so uh kevin will concede in his own story that he got incredibly lucky, and not even at one point, but several points. And if you talk to anyone who's incredibly successful, they'll, uh, unless you're talking about taxes and government, they won't use the word luck. Um, but if you're talking about anything else, they'll they'll talk about how lucky they got at different phases and things like that. So it's funny now to get attention for being a magician, because I basically kept hitting Roblox where I kept not getting that lucky break that my friends got in New York, that created this total diversion for me to go to las vegas and then then i got totally lucky (laughs) you know (laughs) i got totally lucky hooking up with penn and teller and beginning you know a career with television and then beating a career with magic so uh i joke because people other magicians hear my story and they're just really angry (laughs) about how easy it is and it's not lost on me i get it i know what it's like to not be lucky and so yeah. I know that I'm in a place right now where I'm very lucky.
0: And how, how do you, uh, like what were those first kind of few paid gigs like? And how did you get from there to Pentella?
1: Wait, first gigs like in New York, or you mean like first gigs in Vegas,
0: I guess where you start kind of like, uh, doing it professionally. And then, you know, how do you go from there to moving to Las Vegas is kind of an interesting story in itself that, that takes, a, I would have thought a leap of faith.
1: I actually just followed m- my girlfriend at the time and now wife. So, uh, we're about to, we were about to move to Los Angeles because basically we were in New York, and I was getting auditions here and there, and getting commercials and things like that. But um, it basically was kind of like, "Hey, we're in comedy," and she was she had a tremendous amount of success. She was in she's in this musical comedy trio called the Apple Sisters, and they went and did all these festivals like Montreal Just for Laughs and just crushed and got all these managers and agents. So she was the one who was hitting uh, in a big way, and we dawned on us that we're like, you know. All the money in comedy is in Los Angeles. The only places making comedies, both movies and television shows, you know, the big gigs, they're all in L.A. So they're not in New York. So um, let's move. And so we're going to move there. And she has a musical theater background. And even though she would moved to comedy, she still had a few cast directors who knew who she was, but she dropped any representation. She stopped going to audition for Broadway shows, except uh, one, uh, Jersey Boys called her and told her audition three weeks before we were going to, um, move to LA and it was for the Las Vegas company and she booked. And it was funny cause before she's like, should I even go? We're about to move. And I go, it'd be a hilarious problem to have. <laughs> uh, and then she went and booked and it was, a you know, Broadway level contract at Nevada living prices. You couldn't turn that down. So, I could either have go with plan a and move into my future mother-in-law's house without my wife and girlfriend, or I could just stay with my girlfriend and go to Las Vegas. And, uh, so I chose to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems to work out. Okay. For you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very lucky. I was, uh, I was waitering, uh, just cause I was trying to keep the same schedule as she was Jersey boys, the most popular show in town at the time. And, uh, and, uh, um then wayne brady had a show at the venetian and it's mean by luck i mean you know all the things that didn't hit for me in new york as soon as i moved to vegas wayne brady holds an audition for his show at the venetian wayne brady's worked with his comedy partner jonathan mangum like their whole career yep. wayne brady's never worked with a third when he's done live shows with his name on it for some reason he got to be in his bonnet to have a third person and the only catch was the audition was back in New York. So I moved to Vegas and we weren't really making any money yet. And, uh, and then I had to, we had to, I had to fly back to New York to audition, uh, for, uh, Wayne Brady's show and, uh, and the, and I made it into his show and I got hired to do his show in Vegas, Emily Gillette, Penn's wife for her birthday, decided I'm going to go to Wayne Brady's show for my birthday. And she goes to see the show. I'm in it. I come out after the show, she introduces herself, we hit it off, we become friends, and then I'm suddenly in Penn's orbit around Las Vegas and uh and go from there. So I'm hanging out with Penn at movie night. He has he has used to people at his house every Tuesday, and we would go watch movies. And I'm started making him laugh with movie night jokes and things like that. And then I heard him talking about this show he's doing for Discovery Channel, and again, just timing was never great for me. In New York time was perfect here. I was close enough with Penn that um, I could ask him to intern, but wasn't so close that it was awkward, like as a friend, you know? Yeah. So I just was in his orbit. And I just wrote him an email and begging him to kind of intern on this television show. I just, I'm, I want to work on television. Can I please just do anything? I'll get coffee. I'll pick you up. I'll do whatever. Uh, And then they let me intern. Um, I get in a good vibe with Penn Teller and Mike Godot. And then uh, they start having me write jokes and then they like those jokes and then i got hired as a comedy writer
0: which of the tv shows was he on at that time
1: this was post bullshit and this is penn and teller tell a lie
0: oh yeah yeah i remember that one it uh, only ran for a couple of seasons
1: yeah just one just one season Uh, heartbreaking heartbreaking
0: it was really good but i don't know there's i i mean it's just one of those random things i think about formats there's something about bullshit and foolish which just quick
1: with it all it was uh it was a weird show yeah it showed you six science stories and one of them was a lie you had to figure out which one um and that's why it proved so troubling is that Penn and Teller just came off of bullshit and they were really into being very hard and um Penn and Teller's standard for science was higher than the Discovery Channel's standard for science and so a lot of stories that would have made seasons and seasons of the television shows got killed for being kind of Cute with science and Pentell didn't want to put their name on it, and so that's what that's why it ended up only being one season. Is that they thought they had enough for a bunch, and then when Pentel were like, "Actually, what you're saying here is not true," so we're doing a bunch of lies in this show instead of one, you know. And then the modern era was also hard. Like we were doing things like setting up fake websites and things like that in case we want a quick Google during the show. But the internet's not, um, you know, it's it, strangely enough wasn't. Isn't riggable enough to pull that off in a, in a, in a quick and seamless way? It takes uh, unless we, we should have hired some some firm from Russia and we probably could have pulled it off really really quickly. Yeah, like, I believe our
0: government used one. I could could get you the number of.
1: <laughs> <laughs> back on the air, tell a lies back.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's um, I, I think there is something just so wonderful about. that. And it's just so nice to hear you guys speaking about how. Just, just holding it to such a high standard. Like, that's why I think Fool works so well. It's like, when you're watching it, it's not just good enough that they busted most of the trick. They've got to bust all the trick. They've got to bust all the nuances, and it's got to be intellectually honest.
1: Well, yeah, well, the shows, they're geniuses. I mean, like, yeah. what they did was save magic on television. Like, it's not even like... Uh, it's, it's, it's more than that. Like, yeah. because of... David Blaine's levitation and him and him using camera tricks to film levitations in a weird way. Everybody just started saying camera tricks every time they saw magic on television, you know, and Chris Angel came along with his show and used a bunch of camera tricks too. And so everybody just saw magic on TV and said camera tricks and all these big, gigantic stunts that, you know, just, used editing and things like that. And so at one point, are you departing from magic and entering just special effects, that line became a gray area. And so uh, basically, it was so hard if you were in uh, a dedicated magician to getting your stuff on TV, then Penn and Teller figure that if they say you got to fool us, and we're not going to use camera tricks that everybody can watch because you have an arbiter of truth on your side in the room, right? So now you don't have to worry about the camera helping out the magician at home and feeling like that person's not earning it with skill. And now you can put all these tricks that aren't gigantic, that aren't, aren't big, you know, big, crazy tricks that you you would try to sell in a big special, but because it's like a game show format, you can see all these really cool, very skilled, but smaller tricks that have all kinds of different things and you get all kinds of different styles and different approaches in there, you know, so i think
0: it's more important that it's it's sort of like really important it is the game show format for for how it works but it's really important they care about the game show second they care about the magic first it's about introducing magic to people bring that to people
1: yeah and that's only increased in time you know like um we've even like bent and and broken a few rules by accident just because we stopped thinking about it you know uh because we're just always trying to put together the best show possible um and so uh you know, these these guys, the producers, they'll go to magic conventions, international magic conventions, you know, year-round looking for talent and stuff. And if you've noticed in the show, it gets more and more international every year because they're just looking for different yeah. paths, different faces, different people. Um, and then also we do bring back familiar faces as well because people are getting used to the show and getting used to trying to fool those guys. And they want to come back and try it time and time again. I mean, I get it. It's kind of an addictive quality. To I try- mean...
0: You say it's it's getting more international. I mean, it, it started here. You know, I don't like to mention. Oh, yeah, these.
1: yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> we had the first series, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. You guys had the first series.
0: Yeah. And then you um, had all the rest over there.
1: No, no. Uh, uh, and then ITV didn't. Uh, it was ITV, I believe, didn't renew it. Yeah, it was. It was actually like five years before it aired. Uh, yeah, long time. On the CW and and that's because in america so many talent-based shows after america's got talent and american idol popped up and failed tremendously there's so many new shows that came around that bombed and so cw was the thing where they basically just recut the british shows and be like can we just air it in the summertime you know just just run it uh and it won't cost anything we already have it all filmed you know and it was kind of like not you know there's business is complicated, I'm, I'm simplifying it. And I wasn't a part of any of this. So I'm, I'm going all off of uh, information just knowing that knowing everybody involved. CW did not expect it to be the highest rated show they ever had. Yeah, it just aired in the summer as a throwaway. They didn't put any advertising behind it. Nothing. They just were gonna let it run. And then um, the I believe the plan was to just use it as proof of concept to then get a different version of it on a larger network. But Instead, it became the largest, highest rated show in their history. It still is to this day. And they were like, go ahead and make, make more of this exact show. Make more, fool us, and bring it back here and do it. And so it's been running in America ever since. Yeah, and the first year was all basically almost all UK magicians, a few French people and that kind of thing. But now we really get people from all over the world all on the show all the time.
0: Well, we, we have this simple um, rule. It's usually applied to sports, but obviously magic here. If we do something first, we can always win at it, and until everyone else joins in, and then we're <laughs> the
1: No, no, no! You guys, the British still have some fabulous, fabulous magicians that kick ass.
0: So. Oh, I, know. I, I could of course. I mean, uh, one thing which I did find very interesting, and so when do, were you running from that first series, or was it just when it came to LA to Las Vegas? Sorry, right
1: just came to Las Vegas. Although I do behind the scenes of the, I'm certainly doing behind the scenes episodes of the first one because uh, uh, people were asking me to do it, and then it turns out because I'm working on Penn Sunday School, I do know a lot of information about the first season. And, right. and I'm friends with Piff the Magic Dragon, you know, and he he blew up on the first season, and so I actually do have quite uh, I do I, I do have more tidbits than I thought about the first season, when I do behind the scenes.
0: I mean, um, oh, I don't know which trend to go down. Let, let's let's stick to Fulus, but I want to come back to Piff just because I find him. Sure. But um, but, but while we're speaking about uh, Fulus, I think it's also just I I love the fact that uh, Jonathan Ross I thought was a, a wonderful host. He's very well known over here. He worked great for the first few series. I thought it was such a smart idea when he was unavailable to come back to go with Allison, and it just created a new vibe and she's just such a different presenter. Uh, as somebody who kind of writes for it, like how was that kind of change for you?
1: Well, first of all, Jonathan Ross was amazing to work with. I mean, yeah. just amazing. And so, you know, um, my TV writing was, you know, joke writing, uh, you know, for like roasts and things like that and uh, or like quick bits for like commercials and things. I'd never written for kind of larger format stuff um, and then also trying to learn to like write for voices and things like that. So when I got hired to write for Jonathan, it was really like, I was like a, a paid intern and Jonathan Ross was like giving me like a degree in show business. So Jonathan Ross just knows how to host a show, knows how to talk to contestants and puts in the work, you know, shows up early. He was there for watching like every single rehearsal. I mean, yeah, you know, like he's, he doesn't have to be there at all. But they had like a little stool for him and he'd watch and he'd go up and do his own pre-interview and i just keep his notes you know and yeah and then he's so popular and, and busy that all of a sudden doing a, a, a flying over to america wasn't his idea idea of a great time and so and in comes allison hannigan who has no tv hosting experience and so all of a sudden i start helping allison the way jonathan helped me yeah she's such a low personality and at the same time Trying to find her voice, you know. If you go back and watch the first two seasons of *Fool Us*, Jonathan Ross is such a—he's such a worldly figure, and and he's such a a, a, a charming and like uh, devious adult that like his his writing for his humor is is so fun. But he has there's bite to the punchlines. Devious
0: is a very good word for it because it's never malice, but it's kind of he will. No, I try, as a
1: writer, I try to come up with magic words and devious was a magic word. I came up for Jonathan and started opening up a lot of jokes. Yeah. Um, in ball busting, there's a camaraderie there, you know, so he often took the side of the magicians against Penn and Teller and that kind of stuff and really made it kind of fun that way. And so that was fun to write for, uh, in comes Allison, and I started writing jokes with teeth and all of a sudden it's just like hearing this cute mom, you know, do these things was like, Oh, this is a different show. You know, and she's so much more family friendly, and and there's so many families watching this show, and that's again a departure from bullshit, and that's kind of the thing where Penn and Teller had come from too. So if you watch, everyone softens up over the time over time on this. You know, yeah. Penn and Teller's tricks, Penn and Teller's humor, uh, even and and the way they judge and things like that. It's uh, Penn's personality in the first season versus the way he talks now is very different. Um, yeah. So I learned to write for Allison, and then she's totally different, um, deal. And then also there's this is neat thing, <laughs> funny thing to deal with, which is a lot of the magicians, especially American magicians loved Allison Hannigan, you know, so they're going to get to meet Penn and Teller their idols. And they also are meeting their crush from American pie at the same time. And so you really have to like prep magicians to be like, you're going to meet Allison Hannigan and this is the way it's going to go down, you know, and, and do that, but ni- 90% of my job. I mean the writing is fun and I do that basically we really hammer that out three days heading to the first tapings and then two days in between the final tapings. We tape the whole season in two weeks. And most of my job is actually spent prepping contestants to go out there and, and have a uh and kick ass and and to remind them of the T V elements outside of their trick. You know? Yeah. What's it gonna be like to go out there? What's it like to perform in the studio? What's it gonna be like to talk to Allison? How can you focus on not talking to Penn and Teller? You know, you have a chance to get another nugget about you out to millions of people outside of your magic career, uh, a way to meet people interested in you as a person. That's my job is to try to find that little 20 second hunk that goes in between their trick and Penn and Teller guessing. It's like I get, I, it's me trying to find some nugget to make all, millions of people more curious about this person than they were uh, before they saw this trick.
0: Yeah. And it's just wonderful to see how uh, it can be anyone from a brand new performer to a very seasoned one. And they all just look, it's the same excitement, nerves, everything else about going and doing this in front of Penn and Teller.
1: Definitely. Because even some of the most experienced magicians don't have a lot of TV experience, you know? Um, and, uh, and so it is a very, very similar thing. And, and doing magic for television is different than doing magic, you know? Uh, Penn on Penn Sunday School likes to talk about like uh, cooking shows and how he, he hired Jet Teela to prepare him for a cooking competition show. And he's informed that like cooking for television is different than cooking for people at home, you know, and you have judges who are going to eat two bites of something. Those two bites have to be the most valuable bites and they're not going to eat the rest. And so like, if there's any part of the thing you're serving, like if there's a little hanging piece of fat on the chicken or whatever, just cut that off, and throw on in the garbage, you know. You're serving a, yeah. a, 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 a seven-ounce steak instead of an eight-ounce steak because you're cutting off the part that doesn't look perfect. you know, And yeah. doing magic for television is very similar. You have to do a lot of different things that you don't realize doing stage magic.
0: Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about it, just a few of the people who you work with on that show. So you, we mentioned Piff there. Yeah. What a wonderful, completely out there performer. I just... I love to hear you guys when he comes from Sunday school one of my favorite things is just just hear you guys just sitting and just shooting the shit. It's just um, two people, like all of you from very different worlds originally, <laughs> but just, just the same in, in so many ways.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's true. Like I basically look for like ball busting or busting chops like where you where you can or you take the piss out of each other like that's basically and when i have jobs where you can't do that i fail at those jobs you know i want people to mess with me like i want you know i want people like i talked about wayne brady show i did a show for four months uh four month run at the venetian before he closed up shop um and uh we got along but he never like he never messed with me he never like you know but you know, never said anything sarcastic to me. And therefore, it always felt very polite backstage, and it felt polite, going off stage, and it just didn't click, you know, and and so it, it was a fine experiment to be his, his third, his third wheel, but it, it ultimately just didn't work. And so when I started being in the writers room, Penn and Teller, and they both started messing with me, and I started finding ways to mess with them back, you know, call them out on stuff, and they can call me out on stuff and uh, and, and get laughs, then I was like, Oh, good you know this is a comfortable spot and so that's it and piff came around he's such a sarcastic uh bastard that it was (laughs) easy to start messing with him and he'd mess right back and it was very like oh okay this is fun this is just great i'd say like honestly my rapport with piff because i began working with pentel i worked with him for a while i toured with him he gave me a huge break uh with my magic career i mean he is the big break of my magic career um uh Penn and Teller helped me get started and they came and saw my first show, but so did Piff. And then Piff took me on the road for two years opening for him. So um my big break is with Piff. And so uh I owe I owe him just as much as Ben. And it's really like almost brotherly with Piff. It's very, it's very family like my rapport with him.
0: I think it's because uh where it's disparate strands. So like where I'm I I first discovered you through Sunday school and then yeah. discovered Piff a bit. Before that, it kind of like muddles the timeline, but you you've got to know them all about the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean, what happened was that Piff, um, Piff blew up with the British version of America's, uh, with um, with Us. His, his, yeah. his YouTube clip of his appearance on Fool got tens of millions of views and got a million YouTube subscribers. And that alone got him brought over to Vegas to be part of a show over here, a variety show over here. At the Cosmopolitan, Vegas Nocturne was the show. So Piff came over before the show, before Foolus started airing in the U.S. Piff came back. Uh, Piff was in America, yeah. and so um, and, and and therefore, like no one had more success from Foolus than Piff. Like he was already here and working and stuff. And then, um, you know, and then America's Got Talent happened for him uh, when he was already here and and that show had closed and he was trying to figure out how to still make it here in america and he was going to not go on and pen was like go on america's got talent get on that show and the funny thing is that i auditioned at the same time uh i didn't again a lot of breaks didn't happen for me before magic right and so Mm -hmm. but paul my ice cream social partner and i decided we're gonna do uh comedy songs we have a keyboard player there and we go to sign up for uh, our audition in vegas and and behind us walks piff and mr piffles and we're like hey buddy you know and we knew him and so we're like hey we're just chatting and then we both do our little sign in and we both go off to our separate rooms and then all of a sudden paul and i go into a room with one producer and we go uh and we and we go and do our comedy song and it it goes well he goes i'm gonna send you to the next room there's three producers in that room uh and uh and we'll go from there and i was like all right this is
0: use that harsh tone as well. And we'll and I said to it,
1: I said, yeah. And I was like, Paul, I was like, this is a good thing. We're having a good day. And we open the door, and Piff walks by with Mr. Piffles, and four camera crews are following him. Like, he's just surrounded by cameras as he walks around the audition. And then I turned to Paul, I was like, and some people are having a better day than us. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so we go to the next room it's a they don't they don't they don't like us as much as the first room we're, we're done and piff goes on to basically win america's got talent
0: i i well i mean you, you were that close you were that close i mean no. just geographically but you i were mean that close.
1: You, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes i was geographically so close <laughs> uh, there's no jealousy there i mean piff is piff is a super hard worker i mean maniacally hard worker i think what's funny is that he had a quite a reputation pre-dragon as a real passionate magician and a real magic thinker and then he puts on a dragon costume and suddenly he gets so much more attention and so much less credit as a magician
0: i'm i'm sorry as as piff's fellow brit i feel like i have to step in here i believe he is actually a 300 year old magic dragon Yes, he might have dressed in human clothes once but he is shut that off now
1: yes and you can get his his weird human clothes phase uh, yeah. magic tutorial dvds still uh <laughs> different websites and things like that uh but yes i actually spoke very cautiously you actually you, you interpreted something I, I i actually do speak very cautiously about uh about his, his status as a dragon
0: my my son walked in when i was i was watching back uh, i absolutely love it the um uh, master class Penetela did, which you're in, and uh, oh, man. We've, we've just done that bit where he talks about like uh, he gets introduced by uh, Penantella as, um, as a as as someone who's dressed up in the outfit by by uh, Pen, and then he goes, "Excuse me, sorry, I'm a 300 year old dragon who is butt ass naked right now." Now let's continue. And my son walked in just at that moment, and goes, "Why is that guy dressed in a dragon suit?" I go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa let me just play this back for you." So. I... I <laughs> Yeah. We, just because we mentioned it there, like uh, the masterclass, again, I mean, look, I, I'm in awe of you for doing it, but <laughs> 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 why would you do that to yourself? I mean, you're rightly so bricking it throughout the whole thing, like nervous as hell. I mean, you. I think for anyone doing that, you acquitted yourself as well as anyone was going to, but.
1: I think, you know uh tough so this is this is is a very complicated the master my my appearance in master class is very complicated for for many many reasons uh first of all you just don't say no pen and teller offer you an opportunity to be in anything you don't say no uh to get taught by pen teller and johnny Thompson at the same time yeah i don't care how many cameras are there or whatever i'm gonna do it you know um yeah it it does not make me look good at all Uh, and certainly I did worse than I thought I was going to do for it. I did think I was going to mess up. I did think I was going to do the thing that they wanted. You know, the masterclass people when it was all over were thrilled with that segment. They were like, this is what we really wanted. We wanted to show just another tier of learning besides just learning how to do tricks. And they got so much of Penn Teller and Johnny's perspective on performance out of stuff and practice and things like that, and there's stuff that didn't even make the cut that um, I still keep a memory of that that uh, helped me to this day. It actually was a very helpful lesson. It wasn't a show.
0: Let's face it. Look, the, your job there, and and I'm sure that any mistakes were just to help that job. Uh, yes. Was to get things wrong. They can help you with, and to to do things that.
1: No, I wasn't ready. I mean, I was doing a trick that I I was doing a trick that Johnny had taught me. Uh, that I was too hard for me to do in my original magic show that I had a, did a lineup of. So my magic career started by me going to, going to seven magicians, asking him to teach me one trick and putting a show together, yeah. one trick yeah. each. That was, that was my first magic show. And one of the, tr- Johnny Thompson was such a generous guy. And if you don't know who he is, just look him up. He's a fantastic right. magician. And he was Penn and Teller's mentor and, uh, um, And a very successful magician in his own right. And then he was so generous with his time and he loved what I was doing so much that he taught me like five things. I sent you one trick, he taught me like a bunch. Yeah. And so I was trying to work on this one trick that's on the master class called Chop Cup. And it's, it's, uh, and it was, it involves moves, right? It's like so, um, so many tricks are kind of like self working. And that's kind of the big, if you, there's a whole market for tricks and, you kind of figure it all out, and this is not. This it takes some some skill, some sleight of hand skill, and some movement. Um, and so, for the masterclass coming around, I was like, "Oh, Johnny's working on the, the masterclass. I'll bring that trick back out, and I'll actually get him to." Since I had to take another trick, I'll get him to work on it again, which seemed like a good idea. And now I also pitched like other tricks I was working on that I gladly would have done that were much more comedic and easy to do. And I could have like shined more. And masterclass wanted the trick I was struggling with, so uh, okay. I practiced for a week heading into master class, and i probably did the trick um hundreds not not a thousand but probably hundreds of times heading into that that thing and then the worst thing happened the producer and the director pulled me aside when i came in and i quickly set up in the hallway and i did it for them and it went perfect and that's the worst thing that could have possibly happened
0: yes dress rehearsal should never go
1: yeah that you don't want a perfect dress rehearsal. And I had a perfect dress rehearsal. Yeah. And um, another weird thing is that I stopped, I started off doing the hillbill thing and I was dropping it at the time. And all of a sudden this masterclass popped up and I was like, well, shoot, I don't even know how to even say who I am or what I'm doing at the moment. I'm I'm just not going to do this hillbilly thing that I was doing when I first started. So in there, I'm like, I'm like in between outfits. and like in between styles.
0: Yeah. Um, a bit of that.
1: Yeah. So I don't know how to dress. And then I'm trying to do stuff and they're, 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 they were trying to tell me they're gonna put a coat on me or whatever. And um, and uh, yeah, there's a moment where Penn takes off his coat and gives his coat to me in the masterclass. And as a as someone who went to performing arts high school and college, I know that studying plays whenever there's an object exchange is a moment of emotional significance. So I knew it was gonna play really well in the master class that Penn was taking off his coat and giving it to me. Yeah. And my note of knowing it was a moment of emotional significance also washed over me and I almost passed out while we were filming the master class and I almost fell on the ground. Um, it was really a lot. Like I went to go start doing it, and all of a sudden just my body went cold. And I know from auditioning and stuff like that, sometimes you just know it's just not gonna be there. You just you walk into the room and you're like, oh no, this is gonna go horribly. And that's exactly what happened. The room went so cold, all the cameras are on you. Penn, teller, Johnny Thompson looking at you, makeup lights, the whole crew, everybody's dead silent. I'm in the Penn and Teller theater, and I'm like, Oh god, this is gonna go bad. And uh it did. But oh, I got all I- these notes. I got all these notes and then everybody who gets a class gets to watch it learn. And, you know, I, so I taught improv forever and directed people in improv shows forever. And the biggest thing I would tell people, you know, if I did a level one showcase show, if I did a level three showcase show, you know, uh, I'd always say like, you know, the last thing you can do is go out there and fake anything. You're not to go out there and try to pretend you're anywhere else than where you are right now. You can go out there And where you're at in your journey with learning improv and where you're at with your stage confidence, you can go out there and there's a lane for you to do well. And the audience will love you for it. Just go out there and be yourself and don't try to lie about where you're at. Just do it. So I can't knock myself as much as I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at doing that magic trick in the masterclass. It's true. I was horrible at it. I needed help on it. And I went to them for help and I got
0: it. But I think I think the thing which just struck out for me was because, you know, obviously it helps that I know a a bit about the fact that you work with Pentel for all these years and that you kind of like, uh, you know, the room, if you will. But it's just like, I think for anyone who's that nervous, you just because you you were clearly nervous, but it showed how much you cared about this and how much this just mattered to you. And that I thought was wonderful
1: oh well thanks yeah i mean you know at the end of the day if you if you know if you go to the mind another facebook page it's a picture from masterclass it's me teller and johnny and i got pictures with them and you know that kind of thing and i even have a little video uh that a friend took in the uh, green room where johnny after the lesson was over followed me out and then kept teaching me it when they were resetting for the next shot he like kept going you know um and uh, it was great. I mean, I was touring the Piff. There's a Piff segment in that masterclass as well, and we shot those back to back. Yeah. Piff and I were touring when we got asked to do it by Penn and Teller, and Piff basically canceled a night of tour, and we both f- flew home to do that, and both flew back to to do to do his tour to do that. So it was it was a it was a fun time. It was so exciting.
0: Yeah. Um, if we can circle back a bit to how we get to there, though. So like, sure. Uh, so uh, it's kind of quite been quite noted that uh, Penn. Dead you basically to go out and do magic, but yes. uh, tell us about kind of where where do you start? Like you know, I mean, I know you've been around magic for quite a few years at that stage, but to make
1: yeah, sense- well, I mean, that's it. It starts. I'm more. I'm, I'm seasons into Foolus before, uh, um, before I'm dared to do magic by pen, and so I actually am. And Foolus is one of the most finely curated magic showcases there is. So there's there's no shortage of inspiration as to like what kind of tricks I want to do, and and by writing. Intros for people and doing pre-interview, I really got to kind of understand that there are different styles of magic and different approaches to magic, and so I I, I really had a pretty good as as a nerd like understanding of of magic as a of as an outsider. Um, and so it's just about picking a style, right? And so that's when I came up with this hillbilly character, just because um, I know from struggling with stand-up, it's hard to find your authentic voice. So I thought if i'm going to learn seven tricks and then also try to figure out how i matt donnelly talk on stage that's going to be hard to do so why don't i just do it as a character there's plenty of theatrical styles of magic it's easier to write for someone else's voice than my own and so i'll write for a character where i, I can come up with the magic words and the flaws and things like that where i can instantly see how that person filters life and so that was actually very helpful i got to really just
0: self consciousness away from it from like, you know, if this is you saying this, do you feel more self conscious than doing it as a character?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of safety to it It's a big character, you know, big hillbilly wearing overalls. And uh, also there's a, there's a fun to it of doing mentalism where I'm doing uh, really smart things as a very dumb person. And so there's like an instant kind of neat little match of comedic stylings that go along there i like that the dumbest person in the room ends up being the smartest person in the room uh it was kind of a fun idea for me um and then it just made it easier just to kind of go through it all as a play so magic moves and stuff like that i basically wrote the whole show eventually i wrote the whole show and any magic move i do was just written into my blocking you know and so instead yeah. of trying to like really understand magic i just had to understand these seven tricks and how to do these seven tricks and i had a director um rj owens who was amazing um, and he, uh, really, we really kept approach it as theater. We often did it where I'd run through the show with no props, like not actually doing the magic, which is miming everything just to okay. see if I could just get it fluid in my brain and get it fluid in my body kind of thing. And then go back and do it with the, with the actual tricks and the actual props.
0: So sort of approaching it as a showman, not a, magi- yeah, sorry, a performer, I guess, more than a magician. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, there's no way to cheat it. Most magicians who are great start when they are kids. You know, and most people who are really good at manipulation, like really spend some time in isolation at one point in their life and just really lock themselves in the room. I'm a father too. I, I, have, a, I have a house. there. I did not have the options to play catch up on years and years of magic study. So I had to rely on my strength. My strengths are improv. I'm very confident and comfortable on stage. I can be funny in a moment. I can mess up a trick and be okay with it. I'm used to failing. Improv is really make you makes you much more okay with failing than than most other art forms. And so, I just knew I could go out there and rely on those things. Um, and I knew, I knew what it was like to take up people's time. And I know what it it's like to feel a room where you are doing making good use of people's time and bad use of people's time, right? And so, yeah. trying to put together a show that was about an hour long, I kind of understood how to build a show and, and and feel what it was like when that sh- when I need to adjust things in that show.
0: And if you wouldn't mind just a minute, you mentioned Johnny Thompson there. Uh, a mentor yeah. to tell someone you work with for this. Can you just say a little bit about working with him? So for anyone who doesn't know, just a legend in the magic world as, as Matt says, look him up. But,
1: um, yeah, he's got all kinds of stuff. He did plenty, you know, towards the great Tom Sonian company, one of the greatest comedic magic routines of all time. Um, you know, every magician in Vegas worked with him. He was the judge on uh, every season of Fools until they passed. Yeah. Um, and when Penn and Teller dared me to learn magic, I thought wouldn't it be funny to go to Johnny and ask him. And Johnny was incredibly generous with this time. He worked with me. He worked with so many people, but he worked with whoever asked him. He had no ego. Um, and so when I, I asked him, he said, Sure, he just said yes right away, and called him up and he just told me to come over, went to his house, and he started working with me. And, um, and you know, he just started teaching me right there in his living room. And it was even cooler. So, like, I, you know, he's he consults a Penn Teller, he does all this stuff. I, I didn't even know if he cared that much about whatever. I thought he just thought it was fun to hang out with me. I probably ended up doing about three or four sessions at his house, and then, um, uh, I did, I did my little run of my first hillbilly, like hillbilly show in Vegas, he came, he called me up. I was like, I want to come. And I was like, oh yes, of course. Of course. Like I just didn't want to bother him, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so Johnny came out to see the show and checked it all out and gave me notes and everything else. And he was incredibly encouraging. Um, you know. There was a bond because he played you know, the uh, great Tom Sony, which he, he was this Polish magician who kept messing up his bird routine. And uh, and, the, and the hero was playing like a psychic hillbilly. There's like a bond between our natural affinity for playing someone kind of inept um, at what they were doing. So we really he was he was a fantastic influence.
0: And I'm going to say that's something which I do love about uh, your performances, uh, the ones I've seen in Johnny Pennantel and, and Piff, actually, I can put in this as well. There's no in your performance, which I I get. Some magicians, kind of, some people really like that. that That's kind of the style. But I I just love the fact that you do the trick. There is a kind of like there is a celebration of achieving it. But there's no artifice, like you're surprised that that happened. The thing that you're there's a
1: celebrate. uh, Well, Piff's again really, really smart thinker, and so Piff uses music to do what he won't do, and so Piff won't do that because both not in his character to celebrate, um, and it's just not. And so, uh, and there's this thing of like, you're not going to give a magic dragon credit for being the most like powerful human being you've ever seen or, or, or dragon you've ever seen, you know, like you're just not going to give him that credit. And so he knows that. And so it's, his celebration is almost like sarcastic, like, ha ha, gotcha, you know? And the music does all of it while he like sarcastically dances. It's really kind of nice. Penn and Teller just almost move on so quickly. They almost like, they almost like hate applause the way they move on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with their tricks and stuff.
0: I don't mind a pause line. It's just there's something about the kind of falseness of pretending like you're surprised that's going to happen. And I think that's about like, you know, you guys talk a lot, again on Sunday school and, and uh, ice cream social. You talk about being genuine with things. I, I think that
1: yeah, you want to be genuine and you'll see. I mean, you you are lying by doing magic tricks. So you want yeah. the audience to be in on that. And the biggest thing Penn and Teller's influence on all of us and, and is that they always give their audience in, uh, credit for being intelligent. And so anytime I've been in the writer's room with them, or in a rehearsal with them, there's often the the phrase we're like, but they know that already, but they they would know that as soon as they see it, right? Like there's so much where like, they don't even want, they never want to over explain an item to an audience, they want to give the audience credit the whole time. And so I know Penn and Teller's ethics of magic are probably the strictest amongst very popular magicians, but they they do not want you leaving that theater thinking that they have powers you don't have. And yeah. so that really paints you into some strange corners because you want to do the most amazing magic you can think of, and yet leave the audience walking up being puzzled and not thinking that the person should work on the CIA and track down serial killers. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a great um kind of filter it kind of paints you into certain corners it's nice
0: the other kind of performers you work with can you just tell us a bit about the other performers you work the with other together? magicians
1: so i worked with uh pen teller johnny thompson piff the magic dragon uh, a guy named eric diddleman uh okay. he, he had a little run america town he's a mentalist very funny guy really nice guy tremendous performer and uh gave me, gave me a fantastic trick that I, I involves using a baby chicken. So I I can't do it as often as I like, but man, is it good. And, uh, and it crushed in the original run. Brian Brushwood, another great magic thinker, another great ethical thinker, really like a total like decipher of of teller sells some amazing magic stuff. But he, he, he helped me work on his stuff and even flew out to work with me and love the project. And we've been, we've, we've been cohorts, ever since, he has a podcast and I have a podcast. We've done festivals together and stuff like that. But he he taught me one, who am I, who am I missing? And then basically the, my director, RJ Owens was a magician before Cirque discovered him and he kind of golden handcuffs being in Mystere where he didn't do magic, but just performed as a clown. So he was so excited to work with me on magic that um, he directed everything. And that was really important because all these magicians were working with me for, oh, Matt King. That's the one missing. I'm oh, an idiot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Mac King, um, Mac brought me backstage and we taught me talked talked about performing magic and taught me some rope stuff and and he's been a fantastic influence on me as well. Another guy who is a tremendously humble performer yet puts on an amazing show. So yeah, unbelievable help. I mean, a lot of people could do a good magic show without help. <laughs>
0: I, I still think i mean the one thing that, that again getting back to the master class the one thing it taught me is that uh yeah when you understand how it sounds like oh that is a doable thing but geez the technique and getting that so it just uh there's no kind of flares no no sort of like signals to what you're doing and just to get it so that it's looking polished is just i i can't imagine that level of practice to it you've got to really just so get something. You
1: get something in your body, especially do something in your body where you're trying to get, where you're trying to lie and get away with it. It's mm-hmm. very hard. It takes a lot of practice. And If you go ever watch Teller do anything, Teller does everything a thousand times, over and over and over again, and spends like all day, every free moment, working on just a move. If it's coming up and a trick that he, a new trick that he's working on, it's insane. And it's not. It's because of that. It's because your your body's not used to doing something. Your body's doing something that's supposed to look like something else. And you also don't want to get caught doing that. And so there's, there's an honesty in your brain that wants to get caught all the time. It's called magician's guilt, and it's crazy. But the first time I ever do any trick in an audience, your body will do things it's never done before to show the audience you were lying. And it's really weird. And so it takes a really long time to get that. It just takes practice, practice, practice to get that out of your system.
0: And where, where do you make the decision between going from the um, from hillbill to the mind noodler? Where, where do you make the kind of over?
1: i want to do more than mentalism Uh, i want to do actual other kinds of magic tricks and also when i was doing the show was theatrical and if i could have graduated the show theatrically into some larger kind of cooler you know appalachian themed immersive magic and variety show in vegas that would have been awesome and i would have loved it um but instead i toured with piff the magic dragon at comedy clubs and so staying in character comedy clubs people came up to me after the show and they wanted me to be authentically that person. And now all of a sudden I'm making the decision whether I want to be like the Larry, the cable guy of magic, you know, <laughs> whereas like when I, my first run, it was very clearly Matt Donnelly's playing hillbilly, the psychic hillbilly. And this is the show. It was very easy to digest that, to go to comedy clubs as an opener. It wasn't. And so then people were so disappointed that I wasn't this Appalachian root and guy. And so, Uh, I didn't want to stay in character while I was, you know, taking pictures and and signing things. I didn't want to like, and I was like, okay, I got to stop doing this. And then also uh, some, nobody, nobody found it offensive, but numerous people were afraid that other people would. And it never happened, but because I was from Jersey and then ultimately Las Vegas playing an Appalachian uh, guy in dirty overalls, was I saying something? And I just didn't, and I wasn't. So I, I wasn't ready to stand behind that artistically to be like, this must be done. And so it was just time to retire that element of it. I still wear overalls and no one questions it. I've always been like a blue collar, rugged looking dude. I'm not ever going to be the kind of guy who would look awesome in a tuxedo doing really cool things that are so beautiful and elegant. Those are just, you know, we talk about magic words. Elegant is not a magic word of mine. It just never <laughs> will be. No one, no one looks at me and wants me to do something where I make a, a wine glass turn into a tulip. You know, it's just not what what people are going to pay to see me do. So I still have overalls and I still do my thing, but I just talk like I'm me. I'm, I'm the mind noodler from the swamps of Jersey, and uh, here I am.
0: And you get got to take it on to uh, yourself.
1: Yeah, that was fun. Was
0: wonderful, just so much fun.
1: <laughs> you can just see the, the element there. Just you can if you move from masterclass to that clip you can see how far I, I figured it out uh both what it meant to perform the character as me and everything else it was a nice jump to go to yeah. the, my, my experience of of turning around and being contested on a show i worked on was really gratifying and super fun
0: there was it, a lovely was, element which is kind of the reverse of masterclass whereby it's like i felt like you know you just like fooling them doesn't matter. I'm just going to have a good time. I'm going to do this trick. Hopefully it'll impress them. Hopefully they'll enjoy it. And you just seem to have fun written all over your face.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the truth is that I work on the show. And so I basically, as the show got more international, I was like, uh, I basically was like, Hey, if you need a funny American, I have stuff, you know? And, and it was kind of like, take it or leave it. You know, I'm going to work on this show no matter what, but like if you, it would be fun to surprise Penn and Teller with, by me appearing on it. Could this thing kick ass enough to do it? You know, sent them clips again, sent them, you know, four or five ideas. And uh um ultimately they picked a trick that Penn worked on with me a lot. So <laughs> I knew I wasn't gonna fool them. <laughs> uh you know, and then they asked me, like, are they familiar with that?" I go, Penn worked with me on it back in the day, but it's changed since then. I wasn't lying, but but it, but it was, I knew it was, I knew, I knew I was not gonna fool them the only way i was going to fool them there's like a, there was like a less than a one percent chance of them thinking this is so weird he must have done something that we don't know to do, to come on here and do this trick was that the only angle i had for a possible double fool? bluff a total double bluff oh, and no no pen did not think double bluff for a second in fact um teller was not familiar with the trick um pen was and so teller was doing his due diligence and so Teller was trying to peek at what the girl was typing. Teller was keeping things going on in his head. And as they're walking back to the chair, what happens, the first thing Penn and Teller do is they sequence the trick to make sure they have all the elements in order. So it's important. And so the first thing Penn and Teller do when they talk to each other is just make sure they are on the same page about what they they just saw happened in the order they saw it. Um, Which actually is being a very key thing to the way most magicians kind of have huge payoffs is that people misremember and mistell a magic trick when they remember it and so uh teller starts going through the sequence with Penn as they walk back to their chair and teller just goes teller shut up teller shut up teller we have everything shut up and they sat down they talked for like two seconds i'm the only interview they ever watched allison do they watched basically allison interview me the entire time Penn was ready to bust me the moment he sat down
0: <laughs> it was fun though
1: <laughs> yeah
0: i mean i did i, I I think it's just wonderful the fact that that show seems like there's so many elements to put together. So many people you've got to keep from meeting at certain times so you don't give anything away. You've got the judges up there, and then you have fun with it. Like just just to to be able to to um, have got the format down so much that you're now bringing on um, teller sorry Penta full teller. And, you know, yes you're playing around
1: with the again yeah it was that was just as much fun i was in on that that was actually much more of a pain in the ass than keeping me off of the roster yeah um uh uh teller's very involved with uh with the show uh behind the scenes especially the pen and teller bits you know teller is like he's a director of theater he likes to shoot stuff and so teller was very involved um, and so trying to find a way to keep all the script we needed for prompter and all of the rehearsals we needed for Penn off of anything official, like it's handed to Penn and Teller to do it. And then also we have a tight shooting schedule. And so Penn and Teller need 14 tricks for 13 episodes. So they have one extra one just in case. And they're shooting just 13. And their line to Teller was like, we're confident we have enough. And Teller was like really unhappy about that. It was kind of <laughs> pushing back on that. And it was like, we got to shoot this Pen versus Teller thing soon so that Teller can get off our backs about this 14th trick. Um, so it was really. Uh, and then we had to keep having the different code names for it on the on the pages and stuff. And it was unbelievable. And then on top of that, we want to have Piff help out and be Teller's voice. And this was a pain in the ass in two different ways, two different unexpected ways. We had to keep Piff. Uh, you know he's a magic dragon he's hard to hide yeah so we had to keep him away so teller wouldn't even possibly cross paths with him and then all of a sudden we're ready to shoot and we realize that we need to have piff be able to have the the production truck in his ear the way pen and teller do and we have to find a way to get something in his ear and test it without actually going into the truck where pen and teller are sitting in their chairs right now are in here and, and connected to the truck so we had to find a way to get piff to communicate in Penn's place while Penn Teller sat in their place. Total pain in the ass. And that meant that no one thought of ahead of time. And we saw the problem in 15 minutes, but it was the longest 15 minutes of Penn's life. <laughs> uh, and so then we do it. And then Piff comes down the aisle and he starts helping. He's there to help Teller. Teller sees Piff and thinks, great, Piff is here to take Penn's place. I will bounce my uh, sequencing and ideas off of Piff. No, Piff was on Penn's brainstorming team for what he was gonna to try to fool Teller with. So Piff sits down and goes, I actually know the trick. I can't help you. And Teller is furious.
0: <laughs>
1: look at Piff's dumb face while he eats popcorn and Piff can be no help to him while he tries to work
0: it out. With the truck. And Piff enjoying it a lot at, at every moment, I'm guessing? No, he's
1: terrified. If you look, there's even a clip of it. If you watch the clip, Piff looks really terrified.
0: Oh, Teller's Teller's oh, wrath is not
1: something anyone likes.
0: Oh yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how that stacked up against um Piff's uh, British sense of humor. Shall we oh, say? Oh, I know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe after the fact, but during the th- no, not during it. No. <laughs>
0: uh, he said the best thing on um Sunday school that he was saying. It's like, uh, I never want to honestly know what Teller's thinking.
1: <laughs> yeah, his this we call Piff's prayer. Dear Lord, that's, please uh, let yeah. me never know what Teller thinks actually thinks about my act.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Okay, we we have to get on to um. Ice Cream Social and uh, Scoots fest. So like, uh, I, I, it's not something which I've listened to much for. I, I listened to a few in, in preparation for this. I love the fact that it takes, for me, some of the um, best elements of Sunday School, but it kind of puts it through the prism almost of a kind of like a morning zoo radio show, but with funny people. Like, you know, those shows are interminable if people aren't funny. If you get to some people who are really funny on it, there's, yeah, just great fun to be had.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely weren't trying to go for morning zoo. I've heard that metaphor before and it's I nice get it.
0: <laughs> no, no,
1: no. I, I, but I get it. I, I understand it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, our job is to like, uh, we're, we're a out, you know, you're hanging out with a, uh, with a comedy duo from Vegas. And so it's a very low key, uh, podcast. We put it twice a week and it's there to get your mind off and of stuff. You know, Penn's Penn says preaching love. So we say preaching fun, you know? And so we, um, which is two two guys. We, Paul and I have been improvising with each other for um, over a decade. We love uh, it was love at first scene. I mean, we first started performing together, we just hit it off immediately. Um, and so yeah, we start to talk about our lives with the hopes that we derail and go off on ridiculous improvisational bits. So all we do is do these very silly tangents as we talk about our lives and then answer listener mail and then we do trivia. And he's a big Star Trek guy, and I'm a big sports guy. So we call it Jock versus Nerd Trivia. I mean, that's the thing that Paul and I, we couldn't come from more diverse backgrounds. Me from like, you know, just outside New York growing up in New Jersey and him growing up in, you know, Lebanon, Kentucky. Um, him being a Star Wars and Star Trek guy, and me being, you know, a sports fan. Um, we even our improv training, we took two totally different schools of improv training, um, and yet we hit it off. And so, um, And he's a giant weirdo man child, you know, toy collecting guy who lives, no children, two dogs, you know, I'm married with kids, very different lifestyles. And yet we get together twice a week and just joke around and possibly it's just a guilty pleasure, pressure valve release. And we just ask people to join in that fun. We're there to just blow off some steam and joke around you know, and that's what, and that's what our listeners do. So, you know, we have reports of like, I had to stop working out at the gym because I was laughing or I was had to turn down uh, the radio very suddenly because I was at the drive-through of a, of, a, of a food place, you know. So we get all these great stories of like, you know, people, you know, afraid to other people to hear what we're saying out loud because we, we are very over the top. We're very ridiculous. I mean, we're, we can be we, we can use curse words and things like that, but we're not aggro. Then that's why the, the zoo thing can be a little bit of a misplay because there's nothing aggressive or macho about us. We're very much like grade school kids using silly words for the first time than we are like aggressive dudes. It's very, yeah. very, very soft and doughy like our bodies.
0: I, I think that the reason why that one springs to my mind so much is because I, I always thought Morning Zoo, the only um, examples I'd heard were... Pretty really bad ones and then i had uh kevin and bean
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, uh yeah which uh, ralph comes and i got in through him because i was ha- found some of his yeah and i started listening to that and i go oh so like you can have this with kind of some people who aren't trying to one up like they they just have fun with each other they just take the piss it's just fun and funny and these are funny people on it and that made all the difference it's just i think it's just too easy to do that format with just sound effects and forget you're actually meant to be funny performers as well. Yeah, like- we never
1: think about winning or win-upping. It's always about like how far can we together take this ridiculous bit? And if it runs out of steam, then hit it with hit it with a stick and move on. You know, we don't. There's no. Yeah, there's no. I mean, that's that's actually what improv. Like the first lesson of improv, if you're competitive about if you try to win a scene, you're going to be terrible at improv. So much about comedy is about being uh, the sufferer the person who tolerates the person who will endure the company of someone who's deeply flawed. And so, um, so much of that is about being a person who wouldn't stand up for themselves or leave the room or be rude. And so, uh, uh, the years of training like that just make doing bits super fun because no one's trying to win. Everyone's trying to just keep, keep being the voice that keeps it going.
0: And, and where do you, come about doing scoops fest that just seems like a, another wonderful thing so i'm very sorry that this year's has just been canceled but uh rescheduled for next year i believe
1: yeah we postponed it to next year like everything else we're not uh we try to be better than the nba and Lollapalooza, but we're not so um uh, uh Scoot fest was honestly another thing that was discovered by accident paul and i were booked to do a cruise ship together and so uh, we were going to do this gig on this cruise ship and it was going out of new jersey the port and so i was like hey what if we threw together an improv show the night before we left for uh this gig on this cruise ship and um and we went upstairs to Tierney's tavern in montclair new jersey to put an improv show and 150 people showed up from all over the country and we were thought like maybe 20 people were coming and i we were like oh my gosh our listeners will come out just to watch just do an improv show at a bar you know in the afternoon we got to do more of this stuff and so we started putting together a scoop fest where we bring in all of our friends to do podcasts and all of our friends to do entertainment and put on a weekend in las vegas where we have everybody hang out um and and watch cool stuff and joke around and we do a costume party you know we do a pajama you know thing where we make fun of movies and stuff and all the things we do on the show we do live and um One of the coolest things to come out of doing ice cream social and doing a podcast where you're not famous is that you create a community. And so people are there. Yeah, they're there to see me, but not in a way that's like fandom. They're there to like hang. And if anything, I'm just proud of the environment that we get to foster. It's not, there's nothing, there's nothing overly self celebratory. It's a celebration of the, of the listeners that we have. And then, you know, all kinds of people just meet and hit it off. And people have interacted only on Twitter or something, meet for the first time and I mean, yeah, it's just a big social. It's we are an ice cream social. And it's a big social outing for a weekend. Of, it's more of like a a trek convention than it is like a a, a fan concert or something like that. My it's people, really the <laughs> no. It is. It is. We we are. Yeah, in terms of like the jock versus nerd element of it, the, the nerds have won on my podcast audience. They hate any talk of sport, and yeah. uh, love Paul talking about anything with, with uh, you know. Um, Klingon's native tongues and things like that. So I, I've lost, and he's he's won on that end.
0: And you just say kapla to the yeah uh, to the jock of it all.
1: Kapla means cheers, right?
0: Uh, it's ending, so it's like nice. okay, it's like hello and goodbye. I think.
1: See, I'm yeah. just I've learned over. That. I've done now. I've been doing it for seven years. I've, we always say kapla <laughs> yeah. now when we when we do shots or something on the road. <laughs>
0: Um, so just before we kind of wrap things up, uh, you've also got the Abracababble podcast. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
1: It's my secret podcast. Um, you won't find it on any of your podcast apps. You have to go to um, patreon.com slash mynoodler and uh, you get it by subscribing. Um, I've got about like just like 400 people, which is like really nice. Um, and because of it, because, because I came to Magic Late, I'm terrible at talking about it um in a way that i'm great at keeping secrets so i thought why not at least just make me pay two dollars and then if i give away something that pisses off magicians at least they had to pay two dollars to find out uh what uh, i said and
0: you know those magicians won't pay those two dollars i know
1: that's 100 <laughs> correct uh and uh and they don't <laughs> and they won't and then you know and then you can't just search it right so if you hear i said something or whatever you can't just go on the internet and find it and so um, I keep that podcast there. And then um, because I worked on Fool Us, I go, I give behind the scenes breakdowns of, uh, and the guy who directed my show, RJ Owens, and Reddy Rich, who produces uh, Penn Sunday School, He's a huge magic background. And so we break down each and every episode of Fool Us. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that that we do what we do. We break down my, what I'm working on in my career and my shows, and we break down uh, all every single episode of Fool Us uh, on Abracababble which is the podcast you get when you go to patreon.com slash MindNoodler.
0: And you can also go to MindNoodler.com for uh, all things My noodler.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Anywhere you. else you, you'd you just like to plug now? like So there's Sunday School, of course, and Ice Cream Social.
1: I think I've, I've been given them enough, right? I feel like I've given I, them a lot.
0: Never enough. Like no. there's always more. They can't
1: much. possibly. If you didn't know who I was, you can't possibly be interested in more than three things that I'm up to. So I'm going <laughs> to leave it. I'm going to leave it. I should
0: also say for um, for viewers uh, here in the UK, uh, if there's any of the uh, Foolish stuff we've talked about that you haven't seen yet, they are up there on YouTube, and uh, I believe they come out on Netflix Um, periodically. Uh, the series catches up there, so yeah. please check them out now. It's a wonderful show. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I, we just started doing season one, so all the all of our UK listeners are very happy. We're breaking down season one of uh, of Foolish right now. I'm actually recording the episode three tonight and our uk audiences are really loving it so
0: by the way if, I, I can only imagine you carry around a scroller at all times so if you are keeping the weight loss li- list i lost four stone going vegan uh mostly through you guys talking about it on um, awesome YouTube.
1: awesome man keep it up
0: it's the kind of thing i talked about for years but then when you guys actually did it i was like yeah okay it sounds right and i, I have to thank you personally as well because even though you've all done a fantastic job. I think you, like me, found it a little bit difficult. You didn't find it completely easy, which... Oh, I hate how
1: Penn and Godot talk about, like, it's so oh. easy. It's such a. It's not. I just gave yeah. you encouraging words, because I know it's the pain in the ass.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we do the work, but it's difficult. <laughs> like, that's yeah. okay, George. Yeah. Thank well, you very
1: much. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. Um, If you could just stay uh on the call for just a minute while I wrap things up, and I just need to ask you to do one more thing when we're finished. Yep. Cool. So uh, for me, Dr. Squee, for my guest this week, Matt Donnelly, who's that side because it flips my camera. Thank you very much for watching. Sorry for the earlier technical uh, difficulties and thank you for joining us today. And that was uh, the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee, that was my show.